0: Made quite a prayer, didn't it? That was easy for any parent to sing earnestly. Did you enjoy that movie last week, *The Essential Church*? That was quite a blessing, wasn't it? And remember the part where uh, John MacArthur first preached at his church and what they said to him. So I hope you're all ready for me to start preaching hour and twenty-minute service sermons. Is that? Is that the takeaway there? That's what I got out of the movie anyway. So that said, see now, if that's what you're aiming at, then every time I come in under that, you can say, wow, that was a nice short sermon, wow. All right, let's pray together. Our God, you have, we have limitless reasons to praise you and to praise you specifically for your word. In it, you reveal yourself and your heart and your mind to us. In it, we learn of you. In it, your beloved Son stands revealed in His majesty and His purity and His love. The Holy Spirit does His cherished work of glorifying Jesus in the pages of Scripture. And One of the bright facets of the glory of Jesus in the person of Jesus is His heart, the heart of Jesus, the sort of person He is. In today's brief story, we see a shining disclosure of Jesus' heart, that we might know him, that we might trust him, and love him better. Do warm our hearts with love for Jesus, and open children's ears to hear Jesus speak in today's scripture. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder how many of you know a rhyme from my distant childhood. John and Mary sitting in a tree, K-I-S-S-I-N-G. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby in a baby carriage. Well done. Well, even the simple morality of that rhyme is beyond our age. As you so often read of a baby being born to a woman and her partner, and you think, what, do they run a lemonade stand together? Uh, the order of marriage in children is often turned on its head or completely uh, divorced, uh, I say advisedly, in our age. But it's not in Matthew's text. I remind you that Matthew is uh, moving us with Jesus to Jerusalem, and he opens by two sets of three shocking incidents. And the first set of three shocking incidents, all are shocking teachings of Jesus, all land close to home. The first we saw last week was the issue of marriage and divorce brought up by the Pharisees. Well, uh, what normally would follow marriage in that culture and others is children, and that's the topic indeed of the next section, and no less than the first. It contains some shockers as well. well. I wonder, do we have any children in this church I think we've established we've got a few, and we've got a few caring, concerned parents. Well, this section of Scripture will speak to all of us. We will see in it how Jesus sees children, how he feels towards children. And in that, we will find guidance about what God calls us to do with our children. So the way I'll approach this text First, I'll expound it, go through the verses with you expositionally, and then we'll return and uh, take some lessons from Scripture at large uh, that we learn from this section. So first, Roman numeral 1, the exposition, we see in this section, children brought to Jesus, children brought to Jesus, as I translate it. Then, and remember, my translation is not meant to be smooth English, but literal to help you get the feel of the order of words in the Greek text. And we see in the first verse, in fact, what Matthew uh, emphasizes for us. Then were brought to him little children, in order that his hands he might lay upon them and pray. But his disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Permit the little children and stop forbidding them to come to me. For of such as these consists the kingdom of the heavens. And after laying his hands upon them, he went from there. So, as to the narrative, and we see in this section a simple three-part. We have narrative, a word from Jesus, and narrative. So first, narrative in verse 13. We find the rebuked attempt Then were brought to him little children in order that his hands he might lay upon them and pray, but his disciples rebuked them. So the custodians attempted action. Then were brought to him little children. Then, then Matthew says, meaning to tie this in with the previous section. The previous section has two things to it. First is the clash about marriage and divorce, but also he started out by reminding us that Jesus is now moving towards Jerusalem. And this is part of that move towards Jerusalem. It's something Matthew wants us to keep in mind as we see the sort of Jesus who's going to Jerusalem. And if you're able to think ahead, do you remember something about children once he gets to Jerusalem? You do, don't you? You remember that who's crying out his praises and upsetting the leaders in the temple? It's children. And so now we see something more preparing us for this about children and Jesus. Why are there children around Jesus shouting his praises in Jerusalem? This section shows us a bit of why there are children around Jesus and how he feels about them. So then we're brought to him little children. Now that's a a shocking thing. That they of all people, of all sorts of people, should be brought to Jesus. Matthew knows we'll see it that way. He wants us to. What what are little children? Well, anywhere from infancy probably to age twelve. After that, they might well be married and working. So they're regarded as little children in that in that uh, uh, range. Um, and uh, just reading the text, we see that they're young enough that they're not coming by themselves. They're being brought to Jesus. But this is a story, and this is, this is significant to us, that all three synoptics tell. It's a little story, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell the same story, which is significant. And uh, Luke adds that not only uh, were they brought to Jesus, but when Jesus, uh, Jesus called them to himself— as part of this story. So they were old enough to come when called. In fact, Matthew quotes Jesus as saying, permit the children and stop forbidding them to come to me. So they're being brought, but they're coming. They're being brought willingly is the way we put this together. They're young, but they're old enough to come to Jesus and to be called to Jesus then. And what's the purpose of this bringing? That he might lay his hands on them and pray. So they come to Jesus that He might put His hands on them to bless them, that He might physically touch them. And we'll talk about that more later, and it'll be a blessing. But but to pray for them, the lesser is going to be blessed by the greater, in this case, Jesus will lay his hands on them and pray. The parents bring the children, and the children come. We don't read of them screaming and crying and fighting and being afraid of Jesus or not wanting to. The parents want their children to come to Jesus. The children want to come to Jesus. And the purpose is for him to pray for them. That's their attempted action. That's what they mean to do. But Jesus is surrounded by apostles, and the apostles are in opposition to this. But his disciples rebuked them. Now that word rebuke usually is used of telling some somebody to stop doing something wrong, something false, something stupid. And in the eyes of the apostles, the parents were doing something wrong. Jesus was not to be bothered with these children. They weren't to come take his time to lay his hands on those little well placeholders. We'll talk about that, but that's about how they would be seen at this age. They're placeholders. They're, they're not married. They're not producing. They're not working. They're, they're just, you know, a meaningful person to be designated later. <laughs> they need to be provided for. They need to be protected. They need to be taught, but they're not really necessarily productive yet in the eyes of that society. And so well, the apostles don't see them as being the sorts of people who should Bother Jesus and take his time. They were socially marginal. That's what they were. They were socially marginal. They weren't, they weren't cherished and held up ideally and made the heroes of story after story. They were just little placeholders. Potential for later value, but right now, mostly a burden. And childhood was difficult in that, in that day. It's estimated that really only about uh, 50% of children lived past age 10 So it was a dangerous time to be a child for one reason or another. And I just want you to understand that Jesus' attitude, which we see in a moment, is unique. It's not just, well, of course, he cherishes children. No, not of course at that time. Not of course. It's a unique thing, the way he responds to this situation. But what I really also want us all to understand is that the the apostles doubtless thought that they were serving Jesus well. They doubtless thought that they were doing something that he would approve of, that he would be glad that they had saved him this time and this distraction. They, they wouldn't be doing this and rebuking these parents if they thought that they were doing something that would displease Jesus. Boy, they don't have much of a memory, do they? Do you remember chapter 18? How does chapter 18 start off? We just uh, examine that discourse, and they're arguing about who's first and greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And what does Jesus do? He calls a little child over to him. There's a child nearby. And he makes that child and his spirit the model. He just calls the child, and the child comes to him, stands where he puts him, and lets Jesus use him the way he wants to. And he says, you need to be like that. If you don't humble yourself like this little child... You can't even enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, I mean, in our terms, that's just the start of the last chapter. But they clearly had forgotten any lesson that they were meant to learn from this. And so they repel these parents with their children. And we need to understand that that this attitude that they show, it did reflect their generation. It wasn't a bizarre attitude. But we also need to understand it was the opposite of Jesus' attitude. That's something we really need to take to heart in a couple of places. They were sure that they knew what Jesus wanted. And they were dead wrong. 180 degrees wrong about what Jesus wanted and what he thought. They saw no use in these children. Jesus welcomed them. In fact, as we see, he he wrapped his arms around them. In fact, as we see, he publicly rebuked the apostles for their attitude. So now, here's an interesting thing, you know, and I'll I'll remind you this next week, Lord willing, but what's the next story about? The rich young ruler. Did any of them try to stop him from coming to Jesus? Well, no. Why wouldn't Jesus want to talk to a rich young ruler? But these children a waste of time. And how did Jesus respond to each? Opposite. He he says something to the rich young ruler that sends him away sorrowing, but the little children he takes into his arms. So here's a case of them reading Jesus' mind and being dead wrong when they should have read his words and be dead right. Now that may be a, a, a simple thought to you and you don't even think it's worth writing down. It is worth writing down because I see this same mistake made over and over and over and over today. What's the big um, thing that people put on their bracelet? WWJD. What does that stand for? What would Jesus do? And and what what does that call people to do? Well, to imagine how Jesus might respond in this situation. Well, that's what they did. And they were dead wrong. What would be a better bracelet? WDJS. What did Jesus say? Because it's what Jesus says that tells us his will and his heart. So people look at the sexual perversion of the day. They look at this and that political case. And they imagine what their idea of Jesus would respond to this thing. And they're off into imagination land. And then the people who go around and say, yes, but Jesus said this, come off as, you know, well, they're definitely out of step with the society, which is right exactly what we're supposed to be. We are supposed to be out of step with the society. If we're right in step with the society, then we're going the wrong way. Amen? Amen. The only way to know what Jesus thinks about something is to get what he said about something. So there they make the the cardinal mistake of setting aside Jesus' actual words about children and asking themselves, hmm, if I were Jesus, what would I think about this situation? If I were Jesus, what would I want done in this situation? And the answer to that question was the opposite of what Jesus thought and what he wanted done. So then, letter B, from the narrative, we come to a word from Jesus. And from the uh, rebuked attempt to bring children, we see now the reproached acolytes. Acolytes means followers. And of course, I used that word because I needed an A word. And uh, you'll understand. Uh, The attempt and the acolytes, the rebuked attempt, then the reproached acolytes. Uh, Jesus reproaches not the parents, but the disciples. And if you read, by the way, the parallel uh, narrative in Mark, you find that Jesus was irritated at them. Not the parents, but his disciples. He was actually very displeased with them, not with the parents with his disciples. He was vexed with them, and he reproaches them. They reproach the parents, he reproaches them. See his rebuke in verse 14a. But Jesus said, permit the little children and stop forbidding them to come to me. Both those phrases go with the infinitive. In other words, permit them to come to me and stop forbidding them to come to me. So he gives them a two-sided rebuke on the one hand, let them do what they're trying to do and stop preventing them from doing what they're trying to do. Now, is that clear now? It should be clear. Stop stopping them, start letting them. That's what he says to his disciples. In other words, he, he absolutely wants the parents to bring uh, the children to him. And he, uh, I take it, he, he rebukes them just as publicly as they rebuke the parents so that everybody knows that they were not doing Jesus' will in this case. They were, in fact, doing the opposite of what Jesus uh, says. Now, I, I want to note something very important here because of the way this text has often been abused, and we'll return to this a bit later. But what does Jesus say and what doesn't Jesus say? He does say, help me out here, permit the little children and stop forbidding them to do what? Come to me, he says, What doesn't he say permit the little children and stop preventing them from coming to be baptized? Now you chuckle, and I don't blame you, but you would be surprised how many really good men comment on this. In fact I can quote one of them saying If the parents had asked for baptism, he surely would have given it. Well what if what if they'd asked for a pony? I mean, I mean, who knows what he would have done? Why, why are you sure he would have baptized them? For one thing, remember, Jesus didn't baptize anybody. John chapter 4, who baptized? His disciples did. He didn't baptize. So he wouldn't have baptized them. And, but there's not a small point. Well, then who would be the people to baptize the children if there was baptism going on? The disciples. And was it even conceivable to them that they would baptize these little children? No, because they told him to take these little kids out of here. So there's no baptizing of children going on. And it's just a sad comment that to many people's minds, uh, I guess back in Rome a little bit one way or another, sadly a lot of Presbyterians and Lutherans back in Rome when it comes to this, thinking that there's some reason to bring children to a baptism uh, and to to, to bring them to Jesus means to bring them to baptism. But those aren't the same thing. If those were the same thing, well, then we'd all give... Wouldn't we all give 50 bucks to our unbelieving friends to get baptized? If, if baptism did something magical? So you don't have to believe anything. Just get baptized. Uh, otherwise, what is the point of baptizing a little child who has no idea what's going on and no buy-in whatsoever in the process? Well, that's not what's going on here. They're not being brought to baptism. They're being brought to Jesus. Spurgeon uh, preached a controversial... Well, he preached a very controversial sermon called, very frontally, Baptismal Regeneration about the idea, the false idea that one becomes born again by being water baptized. And then he preached a follow-up on this story, the Mark's version of it, but this story that was titled, and it's a good title, and it, it does make the point, Children Brought to Christ, Not the Font. The font is the baptism water receptacle in a church that does that sort of thing. So the title was Children Brought to Christ, Not to the Font. And Spurgeon said in handling this text, In what I believe is its right light, I shall commence first of all by observing that this text has not the shadow of the shade of the ghost of a connection with baptism. Do we follow his point? I think he's made it fairly clear and he's absolutely right. Baptism is not Jesus, baptism is baptism. We'll talk about what it is later. Baptism is an extreme, I mean, I'll say briefly here baptism is a person's. Confession that he is forever done with the world and forever in with Jesus. It's his commitment of the rest of his life to Jesus and saying that for all and for once and for all, he's dead to sin and he's dead to the world. And that is something that very properly follows coming to Jesus, but it is not the same as coming to Jesus. So, notice too, <clears throat> excuse me, so that's that much for that, for Jesus' rebuke. And now, uh, in verse 14b, we have Jesus' reason. He he tells us why He says, Let them come to Me. Don't forbid them. His reason is, For of such as these consists the kingdom of the heavens. Now, people who believe in baptizing infants go to this text, and they say, Well, you see, why not baptize them? Because they're in the kingdom of heaven. They're, they're They're in the kingdom, so why not baptize them? Well, does Jesus say that The kingdom of heaven consists of these. Does he say of these is the kingdom of heavens? No, he does not. He says of such as these consists the kingdom of heaven. So there's something like them that is true of all those who are in the kingdom of heaven. But he's not saying that children are in the kingdom of heaven. Something like these. Well, what is it that's like these? Turn to chapter 18. And let's remind ourselves, because he just said this. And Matthew's thinking that we can keep it in mind. He may be overemphasizing us in our very distracted culture. So let's just make sure and remind ourselves. So chapter 18, they're arguing about who's the greatest. Verse 2, he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted, which means you turn around and become like children, You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, he doesn't say become children, but he says become like children, meaning what? Whoever therefore will humble himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So, uh, if you're unclear on that, I'd, I'd refer you back to the sermon. But the point of it was, as we saw, that when we come to Jesus, we need to be prepared to start all over. That we regard everything we ever thought as now being in very light pencil. We want Jesus to erase what's wrong and write what's new. We're coming to him ready to start over. We're coming to him dependent, not dictating means, needing everything, bringing nothing but sin and folly, needing him in every way. This is the way a person is genuinely converted. And he says, like this little child, meaning this specific child, and, and what had that specific child done? Well, nothing really, except that when Jesus called him, he came, and he stood where Jesus put him, and let Jesus use him in his service, and he used him as a, as a illustration in this case. And so he says, that's what we need to do. He calls, we simply need to come and stand where he puts us, and let him use us. Give ourselves to him just like this child did. And so that's what he's meaning here when he says, for of such as these is the kingdom of heaven. So think in terms of of how to apply that then. The apostles rejected children. Why did they reject children? Well, it's not too easy to, I mean, it's not too hard to imagine what was going on in their mind that these children were adding nothing to his ministry. They they, they didn't bring anything. They, They weren't really anything. They were just needy. They, they just came and they were needy and they needed Jesus and they didn't do anything. They couldn't do anything for Jesus. They couldn't fund his ministry. They really didn't have anything to, uh, to contribute to his ministry. They brought nothing. And what Jesus says is he says, exactly. That's exactly who fills the kingdom of heaven. People who bring nothing, contribute nothing. They're all need. They're all dependents. They're nobodies. But they come to me and I save them. And I make them citizens of God's kingdom. And that's how we come. I think if, well, the next story uh, is a a great rebuke to the other spirit, isn't it? The rich young ruler who comes pretty sure that he's pretty well got all together. But he's got this restless idea that he may have missed something. But Jesus says, we'll keep the commandments. And he says, uh, which ones? Jesus lists off a few and he says, well, I've kept all those. Does he end up great in the kingdom of heaven? Or does he go away sorrowing? He goes away sorrowing. But the sort of person who's in the kingdom of heaven is a person like a child, dependent, needy, just coming when called, coming to Jesus. And Jesus says, uh, You're going to reject them because they're not offering anything. Who do you think fills the kingdom of heaven? And who do you think you are? You're rejecting them because they, they don't bring anything. Who do you think you are? For one thing, I'm having to correct you about this. So let's just start there. Yeah, they were of very much the wrong spirit. And Jesus sets them straight. So then from a word from Jesus, then we go back to the narrative in verse 14. And there we find the lovely picture of the ready arms. The ready arms. And after laying his hands upon them, he went from there. And the other uh, Gospels say, in fact, he took them into his arms. He hugged them. He embraced them. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, I say we're learning a lot about Jesus in this section, and one of the things we're learning is the sort of person Jesus was. I could preach a series on that or write a book on that. You know, there's lots of Uh, There's great benefit in talking about the attributes of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, but there's also a lot to saying the sort of person he was, the kind of man he was. He had a personality. He was a person. And one thing you notice about Jesus really is that he's he's a toucher. I I guess he wouldn't make a a, a very good uh, -er. Bredisher. Bredishers particularly have a pretty large... uh, personal space that they don't like being uh, uh, violated. Um, And we've got some too. If people are space invaders, we just instinctively step away. But Jesus did a lot of touching, and it's interesting who he touched. Who did he touch? We've seen it in Matthew chapter 8. He touched a leper. Nobody touches a leper. But Jesus touched a leper, and when he did, he was cleansed. And he touched Peter's sick mother-in-law, a woman. But Jesus touched her, and she rose and, and served. Who else did he touch? A little girl who died. A girl, a little girl, a little dead girl. But Jesus touched her, and she came to life. Peter's sinking and terrified. He got calls on Jesus to save him. Does Jesus just give a command and float him back up? He grabs a hold of Peter and pulls him back up. Uh, Mount of Transfiguration, chapter 17. The three there are knocked to the ground uh, out of their senses, overwhelmed by the glory of Jesus. And and what does he do? He touches them to reassure them and tell them not to fear. He touches them. Jesus was a toucher. In chapter uh, 18, he takes this child into his arms. Mark tells us who he uses as an illustration. He hugs them. And so he touches these children. He hugs these children Uh, The children want to come. Jesus wants them to come. When they come, they find in Jesus' open arms, ready to embrace them. Isn't that something to know about Jesus? Isn't that something if you're a child to know about Jesus? I'm very happy to be talking to little children. And I know you probably tune in and out of the sermons. Some parts are harder to understand. But I want you to see this part, however old you are. That Jesus has brought little children and do you see what he does? He doesn't get angry. He doesn't tell them to go play. He doesn't tell them to go do something else and stop bothering him because he's doing important work. He just, he takes them and he hugs them. He takes them in his arms. He welcomes them. They're glad they came. That's something to know for parents and for children alike, isn't it? So the children want to come. Jesus wants to welcome and embrace them. And so now having done that, having touched them and prayed for them, now it's onward to Jerusalem where they will take those hands that have touched the little children and nail them to a cross so that those little children and all might be saved and brought into God's kingdom. This is what man, how man returns the kindness and love of Jesus. But we'll get to that later. Now let's turn around and look at this story again by way of application, Roman numeral 2 bringing children to Jesus. First, we saw children brought to Jesus. Now let's talk about the practice of bringing children to Jesus. And the first and most important thing, I cannot assume that we're all on the same page about this because there's so much misunderstanding. We've got to understand who they are Now, when we're dealing with little children, who are they? Are they little innocent blank pieces of paper who really have all the answers in their own heart and all we need to do? I mean, Valerie and I will never forget the time we were at a Bible-believing church, professedly. And uh, it was the kind of church that had a, a discussion after the sermon, and I had just preached a sermon On John 8, 31, 32, that Jesus says, if you continue in my word, then you're truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This was actually very controversial in that church. But that's another story for another time. I just want to quote what one lady said. Now, this is a church where um, children were crawling all over the floor, crawling up to the pulpit while I was preaching. Ladies were knitting. Uh, during the sermon. And, um, but again, that's another story. It was an interesting time. We'll never forget it. But, but to, the, to the point where I brought it up, one, of, one lady shared herself of this, of this thought, and she was not kidding. She said, well, I think that the parents' sole task is to provide our children with a nurturing environment and let them find their own way. Well now, (laughs) that bespeaks one view of human nature, and of a parent's task, and of a child's task. I would just point out it's exactly wrong from what the Bible teaches. So let's take a look very briefly at what the Bible teaches about all children, yes, even your little cherubs and mine. First thing to know about children is they are, every last one of them, fallen. Number one, they are fallen. I'll just read to you from Romans 5. Very theological, but very uh, appropriate. Uh, Paul says, in uh, reading parts of verses 12, 14, 18, and 19, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned." Now, that's all human beings. That's not all human beings of a certain age. That's all, all, all people of a certain species. And what is that species? Natural-born children of Adam. Children of Adam as opposed to, say, virgin-born by the work of the Holy Spirit, as only one was. But natural-born children of Adam, death spreads to all men because all sin. We are all involved in Adam's sin. We are all sinners by virtue of being children of Adam. Before we've even made a choice, we are in that category. Paul goes on to say, verse 14... Death reigned from Adam until Moses even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the trespass of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. And then verses 18 and 19, through one transgression, Adam's, there resulted condemnation to all men. Through the one man's disobedience, the many were appointed sinners. So what do you have to to do to be a fallen person? You need to be conceived of human parents. That's all. Children of Adam are all born under condemnation, we're all born fallen, we're all born sinners. If you have the idea that a child is born innocent and only becomes a a sinner when he makes sinful choices, you're a Pelagian, and that's a heresy. That's a damnable anti-gospel heresy and is not what the Bible teaches. Children are not born innocent to become sinners later. We are all born fallen because we're all children of Adam, and Adam was the federal head of humanity. Adam stood as the representative for all his children that would be born after him. He's named Adam. What does Adam mean? Man. This means man, human being. And so he represents us as the first and representative human being. All children are fallen, they're not innocent. Number two, all children are foolish. They're all all foolish. They don't come with all of the answers inside of themselves. Turn to Proverbs 22 and verse 15. Proverbs 22:15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, the rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, not just certain children, but children qua children. Children as children. Children by being virtue of being children of Adam. Folly is they're born foolish. Think of the way animals are born. They're born with a lot of useful instincts. Children are not, except they are born with the instinct to sin. They don't have to be taught that. We're all born with folly in our hearts. I'm sure every parent here could tell stories of things that your child started to do that would have killed himself and burnt the house down if you just watched except you stepped in and, and the rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Well, that really applies to everything. The lady was exactly wrong. Left to himself, a child will end up in hell under the wrath of God forever because that's where our heart leads up. Folly is bound up in our heart. Proverbs twenty-two six actually means the opposite of what many people take it to mean. If you start out a child used to getting his own way, then he'll just always be that way. He'll always follow his own heart and his own heart will lead him away from God. Folly is bound up in the hearts of children. Proverbs twenty nine fifteen says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. A child left to himself, or let loose is the idea there. Just left, well, to find his own way, as in the immortal words of that poor lady I'm quoting and have quoted many times since. She didn't know she said such deathless words to me, but... Um, but it's true. Uh, you didn't learn everything you needed to learn in kindergarten, unless in kindergarten you learned that you were a sinner who needed Jesus to save you, and that the only thing to do is to trust in the Lord with all your heart, and learn His Word and live by that. Yes, if you learn that by kindergarten, that's, that's the root of everything else. But that is not the way our hearts would lead us. So, children are fallen, they're foolish, and thirdly, they are fickle. Ephesians 4.14, fickle, F-I-C-K-L-E, fickle. Here, there, one, one minute, flitting back and forth like little tumbleweeds. Ephesians 4.14. Now, Paul is talking about our need as a body, every one of us in the body of Christ, to be growing towards maturity. And so he kind of puts it positively and negatively, telling us what we should be and what we should no longer be. Ephesians 4.14 4, 14 is what we should no longer be. What does he say? So that we are no longer to be children. Not in what way? Well, he says, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, and by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Now, as you'll see, this is actually a very important point, but it's the nature of a child, not necessarily to be able to commit himself to one thing and stay with that forever. You know, I, at least one of my children, I know sometimes when, when this child would, would flit from thing to thing to thing, would ask to do one thing, I would say, sure, but you need to do that for at least 10 minutes. <laughs> you need to do that for at least 10 minutes. You know, look at the clock. Well, because that's the nature of children. Children are, you know, built in with a remote control inside their heads and here one moment one another. And that's not maturity. That's something we need to grow into and learn to be. And that's our model as Christians, not being children, but growing to maturity. So they're fallen, they're foolish, they're fickle. So what do we do? Let her be. What we do, well, what do we do? We bring them to Jesus. That's what we do. We bring them to Jesus. Now you say, Well, I know how those parents brought children to Jesus. They took them by the hand. Jesus was over there and they walked over to him. I can't do that. He's at the right hand of the Father. How do I bring my children to Jesus? Uh, Simply in two things. There's two things we can do to bring our children to Jesus. First, we bring them to Jesus by prayer. Number one, by prayer. We can't physically do it, so we bring our children before the throne of mercy. We bring them before the Lord Jesus. We ask Jesus to look on them. We pray for them. Spurgeon says we take them up in the arms of our prayer. And I I quote Spurgeon further. He says that we must present them to God with this anxious prayer that they might sooner die than live to disgrace their father's God that they might sooner die than live to disgrace their father's God. We only desired children that we might in them live over again another life of service to God, to God. And when we looked into their young faces, we never asked wealth for them, nor fame, nor anything else, but that they might be dear unto God and that their names might be written in the Lamb's book of life. We did then bring our children to Christ as far as we could do it, by presenting them before God, by earnest prayer on their behalf. God knows that nothing would give us more joy than to see evidence of their conversion. Our souls would almost leap out of our bodies with joy if we should but know that they were the children of the living God. And every Christian parent said, Amen. Is there anything you want for your child more that he have a heart of ardent love for the Lord Jesus Christ? If your answer is yes, repent. Your heart's in the wrong place. Oh yes, you'd like him to have a good job. You'd like him to marry well. You'd like to have cuddly little grandchildren. You'd like to see all sorts of nice things for him and none of them is necessarily sinful. But if he does all that and then goes to hell, what was it for? No. The, The greatest hope, and cherished goal of a Christian parent is to see a child who loves Jesus with all his heart, who is ardent for Jesus, who yearns to know Him better, who yearns to make his life count for the glory of Christ, who looks at his life and wants that life to bring glory to Jesus. Uh, you, you do that and everything else will take care of itself. A child who's committed to Jesus, well, he'll find... Uh, productive labor to glorify Jesus by. And if he marries, he marries wisely. And if he raises children, he'll raise them in the fear of the Lord. All of these things will be in the right place if the child's heart is in the right place. And the only right place for a child's heart is in the hands of Jesus. So we start by bringing our children to Christ in prayer. Our children must have Christ or we can never be happy about them. And if you can say, well, I'm really okay because he's not walking with Christ, but he's got a good job or a nice wife. Or that, repent. Repent. The most important thing is that our children love Jesus and walk with Him. And we will not stop praying till they do, and doing what we can to point them that way, until we do. Well, how, how do we point them that way? Well, we know only the mighty hand of God can change those hearts, so we never stop praying. We we can't do that. If we could, I would give you the formula. I would free, no charge, but there's no formula to make somebody else's heart change. That's in the hands of God, so we must pray and never stop. But we do it by prayer and secondly we do it by precept, by teaching, by instruction, by precept. Why? Because Romans 10:17 is true. And what's Romans 10:17? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, the word of Christ. So this is how a person comes to know Christ. So if you say, Well, I, I don't want to tell my children what to believe, I, I hope they'll just see my example, well, then you're damning them. Because nobody's going to heaven because of my example. Nobody's going to heaven by my example. Nobody. How do people go to heaven? By the word of Christ, by believing the gospel of Jesus. And what is that? What's a gospel? It's it's a message, it's words, it's these words. And so, it is not in my hand to change a child's heart, but what is in my hand? This is in my hand. This is in your hand, parent. And this is what points the way to Jesus. This is what reveals Jesus. This is what shows us why we need Jesus and how we get Jesus and what it means to have Jesus. This is the only thing that shows that. The Word of God. And so, we teach our children the Word of God. When do we start doing that? Turn to Deuteronomy 6 and... If if all I leave is a legacy in includes everybody knowing about Deuteronomy 6, I'd be very happy. <clears throat> but not that on, alone, but I'd sure like, when I say Deuteronomy 6, I, I sure would like it if everyone thought, oh, I know exactly why he's going there. Deuteronomy 6, 4, the, the central statement of Jewish faith as they see it. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. Yes, so what do I need to do about that truth? Well, verse 5 says, You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart. Okay. And, and what does that mean in practical terms? Verse 6, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. On your heart. Your heart. You learn these words. You don't just go to a church where people talk about it. You put these words on your heart. So keep them to yourself? No, look at the next verse. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, verse 7, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. What does that mean? What does that amount to? Every place and every, every time. All the time and everywhere. On vacations, off vacations, not just Sundays. Every day. Verse 8, bind them on your hand. Verse 9, write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The Word of God everywhere. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. It is God's Word by which we come to know God. And we are to teach our children. What age children? It doesn't say. So how old does, does a child have to be to be taught the Word of God? It doesn't say. So probably best to start in the womb. I'm not entirely kidding. I mean, there's they're still people when they're in the womb, but certainly when the child's born, start speaking the Word of God. There should not be a, a space in their life when they haven't heard it. Uh, turn to Psalm 78. Let's just take a, a look at some things there. Psalm 78 will reinforce the same idea. I may not read every word, but uh, I want us all to get the gist of it here. So Psalm 78, give here, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Uh, I'll open my mouth in a parable. I'll pour forth dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have recounted to us. We will not conceal them from their children, but recount to the generation to come the praises of Yahweh and his strength and his wondrous deeds that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and and set a law in Israel which he commanded to our fathers that they should teach them to their children that the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born that they may arise and recount them to their children that they should set their confidence in God and not forget the deeds of God but observe his commandments and not be like their fathers. So, This is one generation learns the words of God and teaches the next generation so that it might teach the next generation. What age? All their lives, starting from the very start. Why? Because again I say the Word of God is how we come to know God. Not example, not feelings, not dreams, not experiences. The Word of God. John 20 verses 30 and 31 reminds us of that. I love when an author tells us why he wrote his book. John tells us why he wrote the Gospel of John. John 20, verses 30 and 31. John says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also did in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why the Bible is written, to lead us to have life in Christ's name to lead us to saving faith. So you want your children to be saved? You must not teach them and not pray. You must not pray and not teach them. You must pray and teach them. Praying is for what God alone can do. Teaching is what God calls us to do. Isn't that fairly simple? The doing is not as simple, but the idea is as simple as that. And how early should that start? I know an exact place that that tells us about that. Turn to 2 Timothy 1. One of Paul's most personal letters, and and his last as far as we know, 2 Timothy 1, writing to his dear apprentice, Timothy, and in chapter 1, verse 5, he's reminiscing and he says, being reminded of the unhypocritical faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am convinced that it is in you as well. Well, grandma was a believer, and and mom was a believer, and Timothy's a believer. He learned, Lois learned the faith at grandma's knees, Timothy learned the faith at mom's knees. And when did that start? Turn to chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Now, Paul is preparing Timothy for the days to come, days that will be marked by apostasy, by false teaching everywhere. What is to hold Timothy uh, firm in these days? What can he possibly look to with confidence for guidance? Well, Paul says in verse 14, but you continue in the things that you learned and became convinced of. In other words, you do already know everything you need to know, but not intuitively and not by birth, but because he was taught it. Read on knowing from whom you learned them, and that from childhood you've known the sacred writings. That word childhood, that's a Greek word that means since you were a baby, since you were an infant, you've known the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And then you know verses 16 and 17 well, I hope. But when when did Lois start teaching Timothy the Word of God? When he was still on the breast. When he was just an infant, she started reading Scripture to him and telling Scripture to him. And that gave him the wisdom that led to salvation. So how do you lead a child to Christ? Well, you bring a child to Christ in prayer, and you bring a child to Christ by teaching him the Word of God. So every time you preach the Word of God, teach the Word of God to your child, you bring your child to Christ. John. Now, I wish I could find the source of this. I heard this. It could be apocryphal. If it is, then it should have happened. It makes sense. John MacArthur was supposedly asked at one time, uh, how many people have you brought to Christ? And he says, everyone I've ever preached to. And what does he mean? Does he mean he's, he's, he's got decisions from everyone? No. He means every time he preaches, he brings the people who are listening to Christ. I'm bringing you to Christ right now. And I dare say, by God's mercy, every time I preach to you, I bring you to Christ by bringing God's word to you. And that's what a parent can do. Now, when I bring you to God, when I bring you to Christ, what you do with him, that's between you and him. I can't get in there. And when you bring your children to Christ, what they do with him... Well, we wish we could go in And do more than just teach and pray, don't we? We wish we could do more, but we don't. We can't. So we do all we can. We do all we can. Earnestly pray. Earnestly teach. And live in a way that adorns what we're saying. But parents must chiefly do this. This is what God has called us to. Charles Spurgeon tells a very touching story about his own youth. He says, I remember on one occasion my mother praying in this way. Now, Lord... If my children go on in their sins, if my children go on in their sins, it will not be from ignorance that they perish. And my soul must bear a swift witness against them at the day of judgment, if they lay not hold of Christ. The thought of a mother's bearing swift witness against me pierced my conscience and stirred my heart, Spurgeon said and he never forgot it. So this obviously has a point for, sun, for, for, for parents, but also has a point for Sunday school teachers. You bring your students to Christ every time. Well, be sure that you do. Be sure that you bring them to Christ every time when you bring God's Word to them. Now let me close just by talking a few moments about two things that we must avoid. Let us see what we avoid. What we avoid, and first of all, hastiness... H-A-S-T-I-N-E-S-S and I particularly have in mind baptism. And here I hope is something that's very helpful for all of us, all, all parents here. Hastiness. So, you know many parents are <laughs> often unconsciously very um, you know, competitive. You know, my, my little child was toilet trained at two weeks, you know. <laughs> Walking at one month learning Chinese at six months, playing Beethoven at the first year. That's my child. What's your kid doing? Oh, I see Duplos. Uh, you know, and it's, it's just as part of the way we are without knowing it. And that's one thing, but it's another thing when you add, and she was baptized when she was five years old. She was baptized when she was eight years old. And I've heard tale and I've talked to parents, remember I've been in this doing it for a long time, uh, who I think there was a little feeling of it's pretty good. I'm getting my child to baptism at age five, at age eight, at age seven or whatever. And I can't tell you how many people I've baptized whose testimony to me is I was baptized as a kid and it meant absolutely nothing to me. That's why I'm talking to you about baptism now. I wasn't converted. I had no idea what I was doing. Well, obviously that's being done a lot. There's the ambition on a parent's heart and a parent, and obviously we know this a lot of churches like to be able to report numbers, how many we baptized, and they like big numbers. We baptize lots and lots of people. Well, let me ask you a question. Would you let your three year old, your five year old, your ten year old, your thirteen year old, your fifteen year old, would you let that child buy a car? Join the army? Get married? <laughs> well, no, I wouldn't let my little 7-year-old or 10-year-old do that. These are huge decisions. These, these, are, these are massive things. Well, they're all good things, aren't they? I'm sure they're all good things. Join the all great things. Well, why wouldn't you let your 3-year-old do these? Because they're too young to make a decision like that. They're too young to make a commitment like that. They're, that's the rest of their life they're making this commitment. Well, what do you think baptism is? What do you think baptism is? You see, here's a problem we have in our doctrinal corner of the, of the playground, of the neighborhood. We've got straight that you shouldn't um, overestimate baptism. So you shouldn't say baptism makes a Christian. True. You shouldn't say that once a person is water baptized, he's born again. True. You shouldn't say that the waters of bapt well why do I gesture over there? I gesture right here. You know, baptism will take right here. So you can't say the waters of baptism will wash away your sins. No, no, that's that's all wrong. That's over overestimating it. That's that's making it magical. Okay. So then the opposite error is to say because after all, it's just symbolic. So now it's, it's not a big deal at all. It's, it's not magical, so it's really not much. It's a nice thing, and the kids want to eat communion. And Kids, kids don't like seeing food pass away and not being able to eat it. I remember the first time I went to a church of Christ with my dad. Uh, no more converted than this microphone is, less so. And uh, But it did bother me that everyone else got a snack and I didn't. And so there's that pressure. If we'd gone regularly, I'm sure I would have brought that up. And you find out, well, baptism is how you get the snack. And, you know, you're saying, oh, no child would think that way. <laughs> have, you, have you met children? Have you ever been one? I, I was one at one time. It was hundreds of years ago, but I do remember it. So... This is not the truth any more than this is the truth. It's not just a symbol. What is a symbol? Marriage ceremony is just a symbol, right? Marriage ceremony doesn't do anything magical, does it? Now, if anyone approached me and said, I'd like you to do our marriage, but we just think it's just a symbol, we'd have to have a discussion. (laughs) Or maybe several before I would ever agree to being part of such a thing. Because what it's a symbol of is me saying, when I go under the water, when I give my testimony before God and a group of people, and I go under the waters of baptism, what am I saying? I am saying, you can all take this as absolute truth that I am dying to the world and sin as my Lord forever, like a dead person dies. I am dying to all that. And I am coming to life to God in Christ forever. No backing out ever. This is that kind of a commitment. That's what baptism expresses. Death, and death is final. Death to sin and the lordship of sin and life outside of Christ. Resurrection to life in Christ unto God. Walking in righteousness. That's what it is. So, is somebody not ready to to get married or join the military at age eight or six, but he is ready to say who he's going to be for the rest of his life? What were the characteristics of children we saw from Scripture? They're fallen. They're foolish. What was the third one? Fickle. Fickle. So is that something that we should encourage a young child to to take on himself? Well, no, it's, it's not. It isn't. This is a commitment for the rest of their life. And when I have talked to young children who've come uh, to talk to me about baptism, one of the things I'll say is, well, for me to be involved with this, I need to be a faithful pastor to you. And I need to be part of this to you because I represent the church in baptizing you. And so I'm only to baptize people who I'm confident have been converted And and they're born again, and they're walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, with a grown-up person, it's like I've got large print. I I can see choices they make, what they're doing with their lives. I can see what's coming out of their heart. But at your age, you're you're doing what mommy and daddy tell you to do, which which you should. That's being a good child. And you want to know about Jesus? That's wonderful. But the, the, the writing on your heart is just too little for me to read right now. I don't have anything that will let me see what your heart is because right now I don't know what choices are yours and what choices are your parents. So I do want you to keep walking with Jesus and I do want to talk to you and help you about that. We'll talk about that in a second. But let's, let's put this off for now and let's, let's revisit this together another time, you and me. Let, let's make this something that we come back to and talk about later. But now focus on walking with Jesus and learning to, to follow him. You see? Because it would be pastoral malpractice for me to baptize somebody too young. And I've known parents who join churches and put themselves under the discipline and leadership of the church. But when they hear something like that, they leave, they leave the church. Suddenly they're not, they don't need leadership or discipline anymore. And they'll go find somebody who wants to do what they want done and they can just a mile that way a mile that way a mile that way a mile that way I have no churches in mind I'm just saying you know it's easy enough to find but it's not the best service of our children it's not the best service of our children so we want to avoid hastiness but at the same time and finally we want to avoid like the devil hindering that's number two we want to avoid hindering and where do I get that from our story. Parents want to bring these children to Christ, and the apostles hindered them. So, I, I can imagine somebody saying, particularly uh, somebody new maybe, saying, you say, don't hinder, but you just said, don't baptize them. But remember also, we said, being baptized isn't the same thing as coming to Christ. I'm not talking about, about hindering a child coming to Christ. I want to encourage my children to come to Christ. I want us all to encourage our children to come to Christ as soon as they can even think the thought. (laughs) There's no age that's too young uh, to encourage a child to come to Christ. And putting off baptism is not putting off Christ. Be very sure to make clear to your child uh, that you encourage every step to Christ. And, And that we're not saying, when we say, well, let's talk about baptism later, we're not saying, that was well, your, your faith in Christ doesn't count now. It doesn't mean anything. Just it's young faith. This is exactly what you should do now. But let's, let's be who you are now. Let, I want to help you learn about Jesus now. I want you to walk with Jesus now. And like marriage, like these other things, this is something we'll talk about when you're older. But for now, focus on being with Christ. And the, iron, the ironic thing is if a child's focus is Christ and, and not a, a benchmark, then he'll say, fine, that's really what I really want to do. I really just want to walk with Christ. I want to learn about Christ. I want to draw near to Christ. But we've got to make as sure as we can that we encourage every step towards Christ. Praying to Him, reading of Him, learning of Him, walking with Him, remembering that Jesus was very irritated with the apostles for discouraging these parents and children. And Jesus would be very irritated with us if we did anything to discourage children from coming to Christ. So I say as plainly as I can in closing, children, bring your parents to Jesus. And I say, children, come to Jesus. You'll find His arms wide open to welcome you. Come to Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this, Your Word, and for the truth. And we... Older people cherish that about Jesus, that his arms are wide open. He says to us, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, drink of me, uh, you who believe in me. He calls us to come. And when we came, we found his arms wide open. We thank you for that. And thank you, Father, that we can preach that kind of Christ to others. A Christ who, if they would but come, will find his arms wide open. And we pray for our children. We pray that they will come. We pray for the children here hearing your word, that they will come and you'll draw them. And we pray for the many children represented in this church who have heard the gospel and have strayed. And there are so many heavy hearts thinking of our children. And we pray for your mercy towards them. And we pray that you will do whatever you must, whatever is required, to bring them to repentance and to restore them to Christ and to redeem them. In Jesus' name, amen.